Bible, I invite you to open up to the book of John. I know that seems a little odd. Um, you're going to want to go to Galatians, but you've got to keep yourself from going there uh, for just a moment. Uh, today, we're going to be in the book of John. Don't worry, we're not going to cut off Galatians right in the middle of it. Uh, we'll be back there uh, in a couple of weeks, but um, you will join me in the book of John today. Uh, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy. All hail the power of Jesus' name. What are we saying? We are, we are saying that Jesus is worthy to be worshipped as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are, in a, in a sense, we are welcoming him here in the sense of you are a king, Jesus. And so we welcome you as that king. But do you realize that it is possible for us to welcome a king that we don't really want? And when I say a king, I'm referring to King Jesus. It's possible that we could welcome a king that we don't really want. It's possible that we could be singing about and singing for the glory of a king that we actually, in our heart of hearts, who are honest with ourselves and honest before the Lord, a king that we actually don't want. And that's exactly where we find the Jews in our passage today. It's a Sunday that is known as Palm Sunday, right? And and, and it's a Sunday known for that time in the life of Jesus when he was welcomed into Jerusalem. He was given a kingly welcome into the city. And yet as we read this story and as we put this story into the context of, of what had happened before and definitely what came after this triumphal entry, we realized that they were welcoming a king that they did not really want. And if we're not careful, you and I could fall into the trap of doing the very same thing. Welcoming a king that we don't really want. Now, in this passage in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, Jesus is coming to the end of his earthly ministry. It's really the beginning of the end, you could say, or the end of the beginning, however you want to word that. He's coming to the end of his public ministry of doing all of these miracles publicly and and giving all of this public teaching about the kingdom of God. That is drawing to a close, but the reason that he came is now starting. This is the beginning of what's referred to as the Passion Week or the, the Holy Week. And, and he has set his mind, he set his eyes, he has set his face to Jerusalem. He knows that he must go there and he knows that he's going to die. And so his earthly ministry is drawing to a close. But the reason he came is really getting started. And by the end of this week, this Holy Week, he will have accomplished what he came to accomplish. The last big miracle that Jesus, uh, that Jesus did was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Bringing the dead back to life. And then he enters into Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up with our text this morning. <coughs> Verse number 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. 
Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Heavenly Father, as we opened up your word this morning, would you open up our hearts and minds to the truths that your word contains? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to share with you this morning eight simple but profound descriptions about the nature of Jesus as king. Okay, so if you're writing notes, if that's something that you like to do, you could write Jesus is the at the top. And then we're just going to fill in the blank. Okay, Jesus is the blank. All right. All the way down through this passage. The first thing we see is that Jesus is the saving king. Jesus is the saving king. A large crowd has gathered. They gathered, gathered for this feast. And it's going to culminate with the Passover. And there would have been Jews here, not only from, from uh, the city of Jerusalem, but from surrounding areas. It's estimated there could have been up to a million people in Jerusalem for this, for this feast, this annual feast. And so this large crowd gathers, they hear that Jesus is coming, and they gather around, and they take branches of palm trees, and they go out to meet him. And these branches of palm trees, they were a symbol that in that day and time of, of national security and, and of victory. Even nations besides, besides Israel use palm trees as a symbol of victory. And so these, they take these palm branches and they wave them and lay them down at the feet of Jesus and he and he comes in and they say Hosanna 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 that's a Hebrew word that simply means the one who saves the one who saves or save us now that's what that word Hosanna means they were crying out save us now this is the one who saves save us now he is a saving king But the question then becomes, save us from what? What is it that we need saving from? Now, the Jews thought that what they needed to be saved from was a physical oppression by a physical enemy whose name was Rome. And and they thought that that was what or who they needed to be delivered from. And so as they say, save us now, Hosanna, Hosanna, the one who comes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us in their minds. They are thinking earthly. They are thinking on this on this on this horizontal plane, not considering other enemies that they may be facing or other and other another enemy that may be opposing them. They are just looking at their temporary earthly circumstance. And yet this one who is coming in on a donkey is coming to save them from so much more, from a far greater enemy, from sin, from Satan, from eternal death. And that is what Christ has come to save them from. But that's not really what they are wanting. They want a victory. But they're not really looking for the victory that this Jesus has come to give them. And yet, he really is a saving king. They're quoting a a, a psalm here. 
It's a messianic psalm. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. The one who will say that is exactly who Jesus was and is. They just weren't looking for him to save them from the thing that he had come to save them from. But nonetheless, he is a saving king. But not only do we see him as a saving king, we see him as a humble king. We see him as a humble king. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This donkey was a symbol of of peace and, and it was a sign of humility. It wasn't a war horse that he rode into Jerusalem on, but on an unridden donkey. Jesus told told the disciples to go and find this colt and uh, this donkey's colt. It was a young one. It had never been ridden. The only kind of of donkey worthy to have the Son of God sit upon him. And this is the animal that Jesus rode in, a sign of of humility. And, And if you think about it, we are kind of like the Jews in the sense that probably all of us The Jews in this day and time and us today, if we're going to attach our names to someone, if we're going to follow someone's leadership, if we're going to have to submit to someone's rules, something that we don't like to do, we like to be the rulers of our own lives, but if we're going to submit to someone's rule, we want that person to be someone who is great in the eyes of the world so that we too, as their followers, will look great in the eyes of the world. And yet here comes Jesus entering in on a donkey's colt. Not someone that really looks that great in the eyes of the world. And yet he truly is the king who is worthy of their submission and of our submission as well. He is a saving king. He is a humble king. But he is also the promised king. He is the promised king. That's the third truth we see. He is the promised king. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. That is a phrase. That is a phrase that makes us think back to the Old Testament. And that is exactly where John the the apostle takes us. Just as it is written. Where? In God's word. And then he quotes from the book of Zechariah. From this prophecy. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, not only from the Psalms, but also from the prophets, from Zechariah. This king, this Jesus that is coming in, he is the promised king, the promised king, the one that the Israelites had been waiting on. And he came to fulfill those prophecies, but he didn't just come to fulfill the prophecies of a forever king, but as the promised king he would actually also fulfill another part of God's promise. You see, instead of just fulfilling the Scripture's promise that there would be a sovereign, forever king on the throne, he would also fulfill where the Scripture foretold a humiliating and brutal death to this sovereign and forever king. It doesn't really make sense from a, from a worldly standpoint. But Jesus was the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. They were looking, they were wanting the fulfillment of the kingly prophecies. Hey, we're going to have this mighty king and he will be king forever and he will deliver us from our enemies. Those are the prophecies that they were wanting this Jesus to fulfill. But there were other prophecies as well. 
prophecies about pain and suffering and death. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, highly exalted. The Jews would have said, yes, that's the king we want. But if we continue to read in that passage, we find this description of that high and exalted king. As many were astonished as at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was despised and rejected by men. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was considered cut off out of the land of the living. And he poured out his soul to death. That's the full picture of the promised king. They wanted the sovereign, mighty, warrior king that Jesus really is. But they didn't want the other side of him, the suffering servant. But Jesus came to fulfill all of that. And it is good for us that he did. It is actually the king that we need. He is the promised king. John adds a couple of words to this to this quote, but it doesn't it doesn't mess up the meaning. It's actually getting at the meaning. At the beginning of this quote from Zechariah, he uses these words fear not, and this is where we find the fourth truth about Jesus as king. He is the comforting king. He says, "Fear not, daughter of Zion." Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Those words, fear not, are not in the Old Testament text that, that, uh, that John is quoting here. But he understands the Old Testament text. And so he inserts these words, fear not. If we go back to uh, chapter 9 of Zechariah, we find these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then listen to verse 10. I will cut off the chariot. That's a, that's a symbol of war. It's a tool of war. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. That is a comforting king. He brings comfort to his people. It's comforting to know that the enemy has been defeated. But again, we ask this question, what enemy did Jesus come to defeat? They wanted to be comforted but not comforted from the same enemy that Jesus came to give them comfort from. Not comforted in the same way that Jesus would provide them that comfort. And that leads right into the fifth truth about Jesus being king. Because because he is the peacemaking king, he is the comforting king. So number five, Jesus is the peacemaking king. Peacemaking king. This passage there in in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, Paul, uh, John is able to say, fear not, fear not, fear not, because he knew why this king had come. He had come to make peace. Now the Jews would have said, yes, that is exactly what we want. The Jews would have said, this is the king that we have been wanting. Because you see these Romans, they've been oppressing us. And, and we're tired of it, and we want peace right here in our lives right now in our current circumstance. That's where we want peace, right here, right now. And Jesus knows that that is actually not why he came. And that's not the peace that he came to give. And John, writing this after the fact, we see in verse 16, understands 
that Jesus didn't come to create a temporary earthly peace that gives us peace in our present circumstances, but he came to give us a greater peace than that. You see, the Jews want a political peace, not spiritual peace. But what is the better peace? Let me ask you that. What is the better peace? We have turmoil in our lives. You have turmoil in your life right now. Whether it's in your family, whether it's at work, whether it's just in your mind, you're struggling with something. We have, we have turmoil that we, we go through in our lives. And sometimes the greatest thing we can pray, and I use that uh, sarcastically a little bit, the greatest thing that we can think of to pray is, God, give me peace right now. And God says, I have come and given you a much greater peace, an eternal peace. You see, the greatest problem that you and I have is not a problem at at home or a problem at, at work. Our greatest problem is right in our hearts. Our greatest problem is that we are born into this world at enmity with the God who created us. We are born into this world separated from him. We are born into this world, his enemies, his enemies, because we follow the prince of the power of the of the world. That is Satan, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two. We're following after him in our sin. And yet this king, this Jesus, he really did come to give peace, to create peace, to make peace. But here's the kind of peace he came to make peace between you and God. Can you think of a greater peace than that? And it's a peace that lasts for all of eternity. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about your present circumstance. It doesn't mean that he can't bring some healing to your present situation. But ultimately, he came to give us a far greater peace than that. The greatest thing, and I don't say that sarcastically now, that we could pray is, God, give me peace forever with you. Deliverance from my sin. The disciples didn't understand these things until later. They didn't. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. Why didn't they understand these things? Why didn't they know, right as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, this is the one who's going to save us from our sin. This is the one who is going to comfort us for all of eternity because he is going to create peace between us and God. Why didn't they understand that? Perhaps it's because they were wanting something else. They were wanting a different kind of king. They were expecting something different. Something that would change their present circumstances when Jesus had come to change their eternal destination. Number six, we see in verses 17 through 18 that Jesus is the divine king. Notice that there's another crowd. There's the crowd that had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And they're the ones that are welcoming him in with these palm branches. But then in verse 17, it says the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, perhaps there's some of the same people in these crowds, but these are the people that were with him the day before. These are the people that had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continue to bear witness. So you have the crowd welcoming him into Jerusalem, and you have this other crowd saying, do you know what this guy did? 
This guy raised a man from the dead who had been dead for four days, and I saw him walk out of the tomb. Takes us back to that passage just back in chapter 11 when Jesus gave the reason why he raised Lazarus from the dead. This conversation with Martha, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says to him, and here's the point that Jesus wanted people to understand. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Who can raise a man from the dead? That's what Jesus wanted them to be asking themselves. And the answer is God. God's the only one that can do that. And so here is this man riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, and he is God. He is a divine king. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And that sounds great. It really does. But here's the thing. A divine king is going to be more concerned with heavenly things than with earthly things and the jews were human just like we are and so they and us we are often more concerned with earthly things than with heavenly things so here comes god riding into jerusalem and being god his his highest concern is with things that bring glory to god and yet all the people around him are consumed with their earthly needs and wants not with Heavenly things. And so we can see this, this, this confrontation between the actual king that is coming into Jerusalem and the king that the people want. They're focused on here and now. And Jesus being God is focused on heavenly things and what would bring God the most glory and honor and praise. So Jesus probably isn't going to deliver in the way that they are wanting. Number seven in verse 19, we see that Jesus is the unstoppable king. I mean, we just keep adding things to this list. It's amazing the kind of king that Jesus is. He is the unstoppable king. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, I love this. You see that you are gaining nothing. They're not telling that to Jesus. They're saying that to one another. Why would the Pharisees be looking at each other while they see this massive crowd celebrating the arrival of Jesus and they look at each, each look at one another and say, see, you're gaining nothing. And then this one looks at them and says, well, you're not gaining anything either. And this one's like, well, you're not gaining anything either. They're not talking about their weight, okay? They're not talking about, they're not, not on a weight gaining program and they're trying to gain weight for something. That's not what they're talking about. What are, what are they trying to gain? They're trying to gain the removal of Jesus. They're trying to shut Jesus out. If we back up to uh, John chapter 11, verse 53, we find this. So that from so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. We go down to verse 57. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The Pharisees tried to stop Jesus's mission, but they could not. And they decided to stop him, but they realized it was proving to be impossible. His mission to come, to be the saving king, the peacemaking king, was proving impossible to stop. That mission was unstoppable. 
And, and so if they couldn't stop Jesus, they were going to try to stop the people from making much of Jesus. But they couldn't even do that. They couldn't stop the people from making much of Jesus. When we go to the triumphal entry passage in the book of Luke, in Luke's gospel, we find a little, another little detail in Luke chapter 19, verse 39 through 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So while they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the Pharisees are going, hey, stop them from doing this. Stop them from saying this. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He says, good luck stopping me. I will accomplish my mission. I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I will receive the praise that is due my name. Don't try to stop me. And yet we see them trying to do it. And yet in the process, they're looking at each other and saying, we're not getting anywhere. We're trying to stop this one man who's, who all he has is a donkey. And it's not, it doesn't even belong to him. He doesn't even have a war horse. He doesn't even have an army. And we can't stop him. And all the people that we've, trying to, we've been trying to tell, hey, don't, don't follow this man Jesus. They're out there singing his praises. The unstoppable king. The worship of Jesus was unstoppable. It leads us to that last phrase, look, the world has gone after him. Look, the world has gone after him, the Pharisees say. Our eighth thing we see about Jesus is this, that Jesus is, you ready for this? This is awesome. The worldwide king. He is, the to cap it all off, he is not just these things to a small group of nationalistic Israelites. He is these things. He is this kind of king to the world. They say, we are gaining nothing. In other words, we're not able to stop this guy. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, this is a hyperbole in some ways. It's an exaggeration. Certainly, the entire world wasn't gathered in Jerusalem going after Jesus. But in a very real sense, they were speaking truth. They were speaking truth. In John chapter 11, the high priest in verse 49 through 52 had prophesied that Jesus' mission would be worldwide. He didn't want it to be, but he prophesied that it would be. He said that this man, Jesus, would die not only for the nation of Israel, but also to gather into the one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. In John chapter 12, verse 19, we see that the world is going after him. And we even see that fulfilled somewhat in the next verse, verse 20. Look at that. No, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And you know what these Greeks did? They came and asked about Jesus. These weren't Jews. These were Greeks. These were Gentiles. The whole world has gone after What is going on? This man that we're trying to stop. He is now reaching people from across the globe. He is a worldwide king. But the Jews were really just wanting a king to further their national agenda. Not someone who would unite them into one kingdom made up of people from every nation around the world. They had a national agenda. But Jesus had a worldwide agenda. They wanted a king. They just didn't want this king. John tells us that he wrote his gospel, this gospel, this account of Jesus, so that people would read about this Jesus and believe in him. That's why he gave us this account. That's why John wrote this down, so that we would read it and we would believe in this king, Jesus. 
The problem with this story is that although the Jews were saying all these things and acting in this way, they didn't really believe in him. They didn't really want him. They were welcoming an unwanted king. Now, you may say, it sounds like they believed in him. It sounds like they wanted him. I mean, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It sounds like they want him well. I want you to listen to the sound just five days later. Coming out of the same people's mouth. Crucify him. Crucify him. What happened? I thought it was Hosanna. Now it's crucify him. They thought Jesus was something that he turned out not to be. They were welcoming a king that really they didn't actually want. Why? Because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. He didn't deliver the way they wanted him to deliver. They wanted a king who would save them from their earthly enemies, not their spiritual enemies. They wanted a a king to fulfill their desires, not God's promises. They wanted a king who would provide comfort for their bodies, not comfort for their souls. They wanted a king who would bring political peace between them and Rome, not relational peace between them and God. They wanted a king who would focus on worldly things, not a divine king who would be more concerned with the glory of God than with the glory of man. They wanted a private king who would exalt their nation above the other nations, not a worldwide king who would exalt people from every nation to an equal status as children of God. Here's the thing. They were willing to call Jesus their king as long as he delivered earthly blessings. But that is not what Jesus came to give us. And so the question for you and me is this. The question is this. Will you submit? Will you still submit to Jesus as your king when he delivers what he promised, not what you expected? I mean, think about this. What if Jesus, listen closely because this is going to, this hits, it hits me, it hits us um, right where we live in this world. What if Jesus doesn't deliver you from your physical sickness, but does deliver you from your spiritual sickness? What if Jesus doesn't provide you with a comfortable life now, but he does provide you with eternal comfort after your physical death? What if Jesus doesn't fix your family problem or your work problem or your school problem, but he does fix the sin problem of your heart? What if Jesus doesn't wipe away all of your tears right now in the present, but he does wipe away all your tears in his future coming kingdom? What if Jesus doesn't fill your bank account, but does fill you with the riches, the love, and the mercy, and the grace that belong to Him? What if Jesus doesn't give you your best life now, but gives you His life so that you can live now in the middle of the trials and pain and suffering with the hope that the best is yet to come when His kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven? Will you submit to that Jesus? Will you? Will you follow Jesus, King Jesus, when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me? Will you follow him when he says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory? Will you follow this King Jesus when he says, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it? Which king are we submitting to today? Here's the question. Are you submitting 
to Jesus as your king only as long as he gives you what you want. That's not submission, y'all. That's manipulation. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you fill in the blank. Or are we submitting to Jesus with a humble faith that he will give us what we need? Are we submitting to Jesus on our terms or on his terms? Are you submitting to the Jesus you want or the Jesus you have been given? Look at what kind of king that we have been given. Look at this list. How could we not be satisfied with this king? How could we not? How could we say, Jesus, you're holding out on me. You haven't given me everything that I need. How could we want more than this king? How could we not submit our lives to this king? How would we not only worship him with our words, but with our lives as well? How could we not follow him to our death? The one who died for us. Listen, y'all. Jesus might not be the king that you're looking for. He might not be the king that you were expecting. But Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, is the King of kings. And he is exactly what you and I need for him to be. And he provides exactly what we need for life and salvation, both now and for all of eternity. Every other king. And we submit to all kinds of kings. Every other king you choose to submit to, whether it's the king of power or the king of popularity or the king of comfort or the king of a life of ease or the king of money or the king of physical health, all those kings may be able to deliver temporary pleasure or happiness, but will prove powerless when you stand before the holy, righteous God one day. You have to answer for your failure to live up to his On that day when you stand before God, only this Jesus that we find in this passage, that we find in God's word, only this Jesus will be able to give you what you need in that moment. Only he will be able to provide you with forgiveness of sin, a reconciled relationship with God, and entrance into God's presence for all of eternity. Listen closely. That day, whenever that day comes, That's not the time to decide to submit your life to this Jesus. Today is the day to choose to submit your life to this Jesus. Then is not the time to receive from him what you'll need. Now is the time. Now is the time to submit to Jesus as the king he is. God's word says today is the day of salvation. They tried to stop him. They tried to stop the unstoppable king by putting him to death. But his death was, in fact, all a part of his unstoppable plan. It was by Jesus being humble unto death that he became the saving king who fulfilled God's promise to provide eternal comfort for his worldwide people by making peace between us and God. So here's the question. Will you trust in this Jesus? Will you trust in this Jesus? Not your Jesus. Not my Jesus. The ones that we might come up with on our own. Will you trust in this Jesus? He is worthy. The choir sang about so beautifully a little while ago. He is worthy of your life. What more could you ask for? What what, what more could we want? 
give your life to Jesus today. And live in submission to Him every single day. This is my prayer for all of us. And I include myself in this. May God give us hearts that want the King that we are worshiping. May God give us the hearts that want this King. Heavenly Father, Your Word is beautiful. And and the Jesus that You have sent, Your Son, is beautiful in every way. And He is exactly the kind of King that we need. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for looking for something better, for something more. Father, this Easter season, as we welcome the King of Kings, Father, help us to want this King as well. Father, help us not to offer words that seem to be worship, but really are nothing more than empty words because in our hearts we're wanting something other than what you have provided in Jesus Christ. Father, change our hearts to want this Jesus. Get our minds off of the temporary and the earthly and help us to see our spiritual need and see that Jesus came to accomplish something far greater than meeting our earthly wants, material wants, physical wants. Father, help us to welcome this King Jesus, not just right now, but every day of our lives. In the name of Jesus, our King.